I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to our future history week. Today we are, well, I'm always excited. I'm even more excited. One of my favourite people in the world is here today. Um, and Beth, who is another <laughs> one of my favourite people in the world. Let it not be, uh, let me not take anything away from her. But we wanted to talk about, so Beth, you know how like we dig up stuff from a thousand years ago and try and figure out people, how people lived and stuff? Yeah, that's wanted, isn't that what we do as historians? Well, I'm thinking more archaeologists. Because mm. we have an archaeologist with us, and that is Gilad Jaffe. Hello, Gilad. Hello. Hello. He's got stuff to talk about in terms of what people are going to dig up thousands of years from now and make of us lunatics. This is this is actually based on, on a lecture I've given quite a few times. It actually started as a joke through uh, <laughs> one of, an artist friend of mine in Israel. Um, he, he put online a drawing he made of like, things he had on his table. And one of the things was an R2-D2 dog from Star Wars. Mm. And I said, you know, he also does shirts, like Prince shirts from his art. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, if you if you make a shirt of that, I'll give you a lecture that connects Star Wars and archaeology. And he said, there's no way you can connect Star Wars and archaeology. And I said, try me. Challenge and, accepted. Exactly. And and then he made the shirts. <laughs> so then I had to come up with the lecture. Um, but then it grew and it grew and I gave it in, uh, you know, the best place was I gave it at a, a science fiction fantasy con, mm. which was amazing. Oh, but you would have been the coolest person there as an archaeologist. That must have been. Uh, well, you know, it's 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 a sci-fi fantasy con. Everyone's nerds. No one's yeah, you would have been like the least nerdy person there. A king of the nerds. Could have been. Could have been. Could have been. Nerd, yeah. Well, I wore a suit and I put on my Gryffindor Harry Potter tie, so. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, this is like uh, Zach at the Great War Group Conference. Uh, Zach found yeah. himself in the position of being the most sought-after man at the conference, which I don't think <laughs> happened to him anywhere or ever will again. But it means he has yeah. a whole new appreciation for the First World War, doesn't it? It does indeed. We've brought him to the dark side. We have. So, Gillard, talk to us then. Tell us what's in your lecture. What are people well, going to up? Other than so all- that's what I was saying. The, the, the title of the lecture is, is uh, um, Harry Potter, Star Wars, and the Archaeology of the Future. And 
It's basically a run through uh, human beings documentation of, of humanity and, and where it came from and what it might look like in the future and how. And I promise you it connects you will it connects to Star Wars and to Harry Potter in, in, a, in my opinion in a very fun way. Um, but I have to remember that um, archaeology is basically um, probably your listeners know, but I will go over it again. Uh, basically, it's uh, science of reconstructing the past based on the actual finds in the ground. Um, and as you know, because I think we did a whole chapter on, on biblical archaeology, right, Alex? So and then we talked that in, in the Bible specifically, it's, it's, it's a problematic uh, like subgenre because uh, when something doesn't fit with the Bible, then people don't like it. Then, well, if it doesn't fit, it's okay. It's, it just means you have to ask the question, why? Um, so we're talking about, first of all, ask yourselves, what is uh, documentation? Um, in my opinion, we can even count um, the cave drawings of, of Lascaux in France as uh, human documentation. And the reason, there really is no reason why. We're talking about the famous cave uh, found in 1948. You know the story with the dog? Yeah, no, I don't. Is this the I know this one. Like a 17-year-old kid went for a walk with his dog and his dog fell into a hole. So he went and got his friends back and they went in to get the dog out and they found the cave. Um, and that's how the Lascaux, the famous Lascaux cave with all the uh, paintings um, with the bull room, which has uh, the biggest bull drawn in prehistory. It's, I think it's about five meters long drawing, um, which is pretty sure, we're pretty sure it's not an accurate depiction of a bull because a five meter long bull would be one hell of a creature um so uh these are the earliest stages of, of documentation and and it it grows and changes as we go if, if we we skip let's say seven thousand years ahead you get to the mid fourth millennium bc and then we have the first writing systems which of course are also um as you might say, prehistoric, if you might say. We're talking about uh, cuneiform writing uh, in Mesopotamia or uh, the famous hieroglyphs, the ever enigmatic hieroglyphs. There's something about the Egyptians. They steal the thunder from everybody else. It's quite annoying in a certain way. Um, I don't know who does that in World War One in archaeology, it's the Egyptians. Um, so, you know. <laughs> I think Nikolai would say it's the Western Front, wouldn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's always about it. The Belgians with their chocolates. So, you know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a lull over there. Yeah. So uh, go on. So, uh, um, so th these writing systems are are well, of course, much much more advanced. Um, and uh, well, it might surprise you, but the first one to be deciphered was actually the hieroglyphics. Um, and they're not writing systems in, in the form that you and I use today. It's called pictographs. It actually, uh, what, it, what it means, it, it just tells you a symbol. It gives you the idea. To give you a good example, think of uh, the worldwide known symbol for toilet, the man and woman sign. It, it doesn't matter what language you speak, what language you read, what you do not know. If you see that symbol wherever you are in the world, you know that's the toilet. Mm. that's a pictograph that's what it does it just it, it sends the idea and everybody knows what it means 
Um, contrary to a logogram, which is a bit different because a logogram is actually a symbol, which means a whole word. And the best example for that is think of the symbol of percent, 3%, let's say. So you see that symbol, you know what word it is. These, of course, are much more uh, complicated uh, systems and, and human beings start to actually uh, document themselves. Uh, most of the documentation in, in ancient times is, uh, might not surprise you, uh, bureaucracy. Uh, basically, writing was invented in order to manage the economy and the bureaucracy and, and uh, everything. If I'm going too fast or you have questions, please do ask. Um, so uh, as the time goes by, of course, uh, different needs arise. I will state that the earliest uh, narrative or let's say prose writing we have is also probably heard of the Gilgamesh uh, tablets. Yes. Yeah. Yes discovered by the British Henry Layard uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, he excavated them, by the way, very poorly. He actually bought them all in one big mess. It took them 14 years to sort them out, understanding which order they go before they could even understand what's written on them. So uh, that's actually uh, considered the earliest, um, let's say, I'm giving here big, big air quotes, novel mm. in history. It's, 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 it's actually a document that's not bureaucratic. It's not... Uh, some king uh, saying how good he is or how many battles he won. It's actually just a fable, an actual story. Um, the problem with the Gilgamesh is, of course, that there is there was a king, uh, an ancient Sumerian king called Gilgamesh, uh, the fifth ruler of Sumer. So uh, it's a big question, is or isn't it? How much historical accuracy does it have? Um, you jump to the next phase and you have... Uh, the invention of the alphabets, which uh, is not is not attributed to the Greeks, as some people once told me, the Greeks did not invent the alphabet. They didn't invent the first version of the Latin alphabet. It's a different story. Alphabet was invented by um, slaves in the mining site in southern Sinai Peninsula, in somewhere around 1200 BC. Um, and that, of course, leads to uh, the Phoenician alphabet, which that leads to the uh, Greek alphabet. And the Greeks were the ones to switch the direction. I'm assuming you know that all uh, Semite, Semite languages are written from uh, right to left to this day. Hebrew, Arabic, Persian, all those. And then you have the Latin ones, which are written from left to right. The reason is because the Greeks are the ones to introduce writing in ink. So given that most people are right-handed and most of the elite were probably right-handed, the people who wrote, they switched the direction so the ink won't smudge as you write. Because if you're right-handed and you write from right to left, you can smudge the ink. Ask any left person, they'll tell you this day. Question. <laughs> but you're both? No, no, I'm not. I have a question. You said the Greeks are the first to use ink. What did the Egyptians use? Um... It's uh, it's kind of it's pigments. It's not it's not ink mm. in, in the way that we know it that flows out uh, that flows from from let's say the edge of the feather as we know that romanticized version that the person writes with feather and ink. Uh, so the fact that it was more flowing, more fluid, more wet on the parchment, yeah. uh, it was more liable to smudge. Hence, they changed the direction, 
And then the Romans built their Latin alphabet on the Greek alphabet, which gives us the way we are writing all today. Given putting aside Far East languages, uh, Indo-European languages, basically all the languages that we deal with today uh, have their roots in the Phoenician alphabet, which is pretty amazing as it is. Now, the documentation in this period, this, this is a major change because of course we have all the uh, Greek philosophers, playwrights and, and all those things. So we actually see that human beings have become much more, uh, their needs have changed and they become much more aware of how to satisfy those needs. And the, the, the next jump is might be the biggest and that goes, brings us to uh, uh, Johann Gutenberg. I swear this will get to future archaeology. Don't worry. No, <laughs> no, no, this is really worry. interesting. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. We trust I'm you. Building up to. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he invented uh, uh, the, the mobile press, which, uh, well, that was the first time anybody could actually reprint something in more than one copy and do it uh, fairly quickly and fairly um, easily. Uh, trivia question. How many Gutenberg Bibles do we know that still exist in the world? Original ones. It's either going to be really, really small or like a much bigger number than you expect. I'm going to go small. I'm going to go like two. Alex? Go on. I say three. Okay. <laughs> 47. Ah. But the catch is we only know the location of 44. There are three more that we know that survived. I don't know how they know it survived. But they're in some kind of private collection. Nobody knows where they are. Uh, you can't say things like that to Beth. She's like the most overcompetitive person in the world. She's going to be on a mission to track them down now. I'm going to go and find all these private collections <laughs> and find uh, the so, three Bibles. <laughs> so, so that's your winter sorted out. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah. So and and Gutenberg really it, it um, that's the birth of you know of books, and we all love books. OBS. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Too much. Yeah, so uh, that, that and, and that gives again. This is a, this is a major uh, uh, has a major effect on, on all of culture because uh, much more people have access. Much more people begin reading. Uh, the whole um, again, the whole character of the writing changes. Uh, much more novel, much less not much less, but <clears throat> we get uh, maybe equal amount of, of novels and bureaucracy. Bureaucracy never dies, of course. It never will die. When the earth will explode, whatever will remain is bureaucracy. That's, that's <laughs> and like maybe cockroaches. So, you know, um, the thing is that the documentation, and when I mean documentation, I mean like every form of writing that, um, that, that talks about daily or regular life. And it gets more and more elaborate. And we have uh, letters. Let's say first letters home that I know of uh, from the war front are Napoleonic army soldiers' letters um, that were sent back home. And maybe the highest point of this self documentation in writing is in the 20th century, World War I, World War II. Um, how many of how much research that you girls know uh, is based on letters written from home from soldiers? Huge amounts. Lots of it. And, and that's it, because this is a point where most people could read and write basically enough and, and they would send letters. And these letters, well, uh, uh, good for us, historians state. So uh, we can research them, we can 
we can check this letter and this letter and these two soldiers served together this this day and this was on this day and the events and and correlate between events and that's actually how we do the research and the thing is that this goes on until the beginning of the 21st century and then what gets invented facebook social media or or should we say meta <laughs> i understand they change their names so you have to, i don't know um and, and this is a big change and this is a big change social network has uh has flipped the way we treat documentation and i'm gonna fixate on one issue specifically and that's photographs because it's the best example there's a famous saying that if your house burns starts burning what do you do you grab the photo albums and you run out because basically everything else you can change you can buy you can you can you can get it back but photos that you took of yourself of your children of your family 20 years ago um, and I'm not talking about digital stored in the cloud somewhere uh, in, in Bill Gates's office and actual photos that you can't reprint uh, if they're gone they're gone and social media has changed that whole concept because We are now taking digital photos nearly exclusively, I think. Uh, when was the last time one of you printed a photo? Uh, Beth printed loads last week, but that was only for the conference. Before uh, that... Uh, uh, no, no, no. I'll rephrase. When was the last time one of you pr printed for herself personal photos? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, well, I was, uh, I've, I've grown up in a, in a generation where all of our photos have basically been online. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, and then, you know, and then came Instagram and then Facebook bought Instagram because they understood that photos were the, were the whole rage and, and then people have not, the numbers are, wait, I got this, I, I came prepared, don't they? I have the numbers yeah. here. Um, this is fairly updated uh, to today. We're talking about uh, 2.3 million uh, uh, monthly users on Facebook and uh, 1.1.5 billion daily users. Uh, something like 250 billion photos uh, are on Facebook currently. And this is, I'm assuming the numbers are higher. Um, if we go to Instagram, You also, you get, the numbers are crazy. You have uh, uh, 50, million, 50 billion photos uh, have been uploaded to Instagram to this day, more or less, let's say. Okay, not to this day, a few months ago. Um, but the numbers are amazing. And I'm assuming that 0.00 something of these photos have been printed. Mm. Um, so basically, basically, uh, and we don't, have physical photos with us anymore. Uh, let's go to the second uh, issue. When was the last time one of you wrote a letter, actual pen and paper and sent it by mail? I'm not condescending. I don't do these things myself. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. not <laughs> <laughs> like I'm all day, you know, scribbling with my quill. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Probably when I was doing the Eaton book, I dealt with quite a lot of elderly people and it was just was more appropriate than email. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily think it counts, but sending out wedding invitations, maybe. Well, right, them you, you would think it wouldn't count. But you know what? If you look at, uh, let's say, Linear B tablets with texts from Crete, we're talking Minoan Crete, somewhere around 14th, 13th century BC. Mm. All you have there is bureaucracy. And we're talking about the dullest bureaucracy you can think about. We're talking about how many sheep the palace had how many they gave to the herders in the island, how many sheep each herder got, and then how much he was supposed to give back, how much he actually gave back, and what's the deficit. And it sounds boring, but you suddenly you see a pattern arise, and you understand that the herders weren't suckers. They got sheep, and then when they had bad sheep or sick sheep, they would trade them into the palace's herd and keep the good ones for themselves. They would actually, they would actually use... The, the 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 lack of control of the palace for their own advantage and and actually make their herds better than they were. If you look most coffee shops today, you look at the receipt, usually you have your name on top because they ask your name if they write it right or not. Some for some reason Starbucks uh, uh, insists on writing my name as Dylan every time. Then, I don't think they've ever ever got anyone's name right ever, but the thoughts uh, there, right? It might be. Might be, but you have your name on the top. You have a date, you have an hour, you have a location of the coffee shop. You have what you bought. How much did it cost? How much did you actually pay? Did you pay in card? Did you pay in cash? How much How much um, change you got back? Now take all of these small coffee booths and you can build a picture of that coffee house when it was established, when it stopped working, when it was its peak. It sounds boring, but, and this is coffee. I'm just giving a very boring example on purpose, but these are, it's the same thing with the sheep in, in, in Crete. It's the same thing. It sounds boring, but suddenly a different picture arises when you start to connect all this data together. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't do that anymore. Even if they print the receipts, they throw them in the bin because I got a digital copy anyway in the computer, which they send to their accountant later. You don't take the receipt. None of us take receipts from coffee houses. Only really, you know, uh, independent Dingy uh, people who want to claim the tax back and for exactly. Only and <laughs> I've dealt with enough taxes in my life. I've never handed in a coffee. <laughs> never. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I feel ashamed. <laughs> but um, so we don't have pictures of ourselves. We don't have uh, uh, letters that we write. We have the bills. So we have electric bills, water bills, stuff like that. But we don't have anything that's speaking directly of our actual life. Not how much you pay for electricity, but what did you do while you were using that electricity? We don't know. And, and this is social media. For good or for bad, this is the world of social media. Mm. In the meantime, during all this, 1977, Star Wars, which is now called Episode 4, goes out and becomes this huge phenomenon. Now, Star Wars to date has, um, uh, if, we, if, we only, if we only take into consideration uh, the nine major movies, so you have like nine major movies, and you have tons of books, you have movies, and these were all filmed in places that exist. Like, uh, for example, if you go to uh, Tunisia, to uh, Um Jemel, which is an actual village where scenes from The Phantom Menace was shot, you can see that place. If you go to the uh, island of uh, Jerba, which is just off the coast of Tunisia, you can actually see to this day the prop uh, the house they built as Obi-Wan Kenobi's house in which the scenes were, were filmed. It's still there. You can even find um, the small famous igloo of uh, Luke Skywalker's aunt and uncle where he lived at the beginning of the movie. It's still there in the desert. You can find pictures of it online. It's no problem. Um, if you, you can even go further to uh, places like um, you probably, I'm, I might be pronouncing this wrong, you're British, you might know, Skellig Michael in Southern Ireland. Is that sound? That's it. I think so. Anyway, it's a, weird. it's a couple of, 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 uh, of it's a nature reserve, islands nature reserve, which have, uh, which a group of monks used to live on. The buildings are still there. They filmed scenes from uh, uh, The Force Awakens. Uh, over there, you can you can take it to very many places. The the most famous might be uh, the famous uh, uh, Mayan city of Tikal, which uh, most people know how it looks with, with the famous temple number one, the high one in the middle, and they use that as a backdrop for uh, the rebels' home base in Star Wars Episode Four, and they actually superimpose the scenes on the site. The site is the site; it's, it's one of the most amazing and important sites of Southern America. Uh, of Central America uh, pre-Spanish pre pre uh, conquest. And, but it looks completely believable as that planet, which is called Yavin 4 in, in that movie. Uh, so that's Star Wars. And oh, and keeping in consideration, I love this small part that Star Wars always starts with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So we have <laughs> a little bit of a, of a time anchor, but I also promised you Harry Potter and Harry Potter is, is not, not less interesting. Um, I'm assuming most of our listeners know uh, about Harry Potter books and movies came out. The first one came out in 1997, would you believe, 24 years. Um, how old do you feel now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and of course, a huge phenomenon. We have uh, uh, seven main books. Also, there's an eighth one with the cursed child. We have the movies. We also have places, uh, um, uh, I I think this is called Anik Castle. And again, I'm never yeah, sure. Is, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So, and it's a real, it's, it's a castle still being used north 
Uh, it's in Northumberland. And it's, I think it's, it's the seat of the Duke of Northumberland, if I read correctly. And this was used for all the outer scenes of Hogwarts in the first movies, complete as it is. They filmed in the castle. Um, you also have scenes shot, of course, outside the famous St. Pancreas, posing as King's Cross because King's Cross looks too modern. So it's not like Gothic enough. So they use St. Pancreas where you can see the car fly above the train station in the second movie. Um, uh, many, many, many other locations. And I haven't yet even started to talk about uh, what's oh, this. I've just oh, got to say, yeah, the, the train, the Harry yeah. Potter train. train. I don't remember the name of the bridge, but yeah, you're getting uh, Glen Finnan. Glen Finnan the train. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we haven't even started to talk about, you know, the pop figurines? Mm. Yes. Yes. Very popular. We have pop figurines of uh, Harry and Ron, Hermione and Hagrid and everybody. We have pop figurines of uh, Luke Skywalker and all the major characters from Star Wars and uh, uh, Harry Potter. The amount of merchandise, these two, and I'm talking only about these two franchises, there's many more. Um, the amount of merchandise the, these franchises produce and that is sold. I mean, if you would walk into my 17-year-old's daughter's room in Israel like two years ago, Everything was Harry Potter, down to the uh, Harry Potter sweater she bought at the at the studio tour. So she even has like a, a Gryffindor um, uh, Hogwarts uniform to wear. Um, it's amazing. Now multiply this by the whole world, children. In an absurd way, we might reach a level where there is more evidence of the existence of Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter than there is of regular people because we're not leaving anything behind. Everything's on Facebook. And that's to think that we worship some little ginger schoolboy as a god the world over. It could be. It, it sounds stupid. I'm not. Um, I'm not going to to the places of we worship. What I'm saying is that if theoretically, and then I, I turn to a few like uh, you know uh, internet and social media experts because I know little about this, and I ask them, can can these servers break down? Can, can this can this be deleted? And of course, I said no. Very very slim chance. But but the thing is, the thing is that that we do have one example. We do have one example of something like this happening. Um, this happened uh, in 2019, 20th of March 2019. Um, I don't know if you remember MySpace. <laughs> but, oh, MySpace. Uh, actually, the MySpace was. MySpace, yeah, it was a social network before Facebook existed. And their servers got wiped. And billions of songs and art pieces were wiped. They actually managed to salvage a big chunk of it in a weird way because it was downloaded to a different server in University of California for research. So, But everything that was on MySpace is gone. And there's no way to retrieve it. Imagine that happening to Facebook or Google or, or Twitter. And we're essentially using Facebook and Instagram as our personal photo albums. Yes. And our personal, mm -hmm. some people are actually, some people are actively using Twitter and Facebook as their journal. Dear diary, today I drank 3% milk, you know. So <laughs> Here is um, my dinner. Yeah, exactly. Look what I ate. I, mean, I, don't, I never understood that, you know, following your food. People do. But again, so if all this gets wiped out, 
what are we leaving behind us? Because think about it. If we would, if we, if Schliemann would have found Troy, but we had nothing written about it, it would be nothing but very, very nice and impressive walls with lovely architecture, lovely gold and bronze uh, jewelry. But how does it all fit together? Archaeology can only take you a certain distance. You can find the finds. You can find the pottery and the jewelry and the flint tools and maybe uh, uh, a writing carved in stone and the walls and architecture. But you need the history to give you context. You need, that's a big problem I talked about at the beginning. That's a big problem with biblical archaeology, that the writing, the historical source of biblical archaeology is a flawed source. We can't trust it enough. So we have a problem connecting the dots. That's why making, that's why doing archaeology in Hellenistic and Roman periods is much easier. Documentation is more believable. And to a certain extent, it exists much more. We have much more documentation. So we might, and this is a theory, and it is a theory because I have no way to back it up because it hasn't happened yet. We're talking about the future. So, um, so the theory is that we're not documenting ourselves. And absurdly, we're allowing things that don't really exist to be ultra-documented mm. in stupid ways, maybe. But it is happening. It is happening. And again, think about it. In archaeology, if you find something, that's the find. That's the fact. That's what defines the answer. If you know it happened or not, depends on if you have a historical resource to back it up. So I can, if I had no historical source, I could claim that the destruction of Pompeii was done by a ravaging army of barbarians who brought a lot of uh, volcanic ash with them in buckets and spread it all over the city. Yeah. <laughs> if I don't have an historical source, Go contradict me. Yeah. Okay, do it. And so it's a funny thing to think about, but it's, it's it, it, in a certain way, I'm looking at it and, and I can see it happening. And of course, it doesn't have to stop uh, Harry Potter and Star Wars, of course, you know, we can find lots of things. Think about maybe the most famous, that everybody knows, two most famous examples are uh, the set of Hobbiton in New Zealand. Lord of the Rings, and you're getting excited. Yeah. Yeah. She went there on her honeymoon. I've been there. <laughs> ah, you've been there. Nice, um, nice. Running around like the little hobbit that I am. <laughs> With your little stumpy. Do you have hair on? Do you have hair on your feet? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> no, she okay. can't be a hobbit because she has stumpy little, like. Child feet. Don't hobbits have big hairy feet? Yeah. I actually, well, it won't help the readers, but I have the one reader. Yeah, e even I'm contributing to the problem of historical future documentation, you see? So you have Hobbiton, which again, who's to say in 500 years people won't, won't grasp it differently than we are? Another famous example from the recent years, uh, I never saw it because I read the books, but uh, we're talking about King's Landing, uh, the famous yes. walls in the book. Um, everybody knows that those walls are representation of King's Landing in, in the TV series. So. Again, what's to say? And this is even this is an even more grounded scenery. If someone you know uh, 
imagine that that the Song of Ice and Fire is the only book left in the world. I laugh my head off if the archaeologists spend their entire lives looking for that church that got blown up in where they just run out of plot in like season six and blew up the red church or whatever. They they just can't find any evidence of the explosion. It must be around here somewhere. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's dangerous because there there is a certain type of archaeologist. I'm going to say this recorded on on record that you know they they know before they reach the site they know already what they found it's just that the dirt is in the way they have to move it mm. um so basically the whole what i'm trying to say is that we actually need to pay a little bit more attention about what we're leaving behind because we're actually not doing too much to leave stuff behind now if few for one minute think that the houses we're living in today will last as long as houses we're excavating mm. uh, your delusion. There is no way. So basically, we might reach a point where not only has the, let's say, uh, humanitarian side of our, of our uh, documentation spirit, we're, we're hardly leaving any physical evidence because these buildings will crumble. They're not meant to last 500 years we're not talking about the pyramids. We're not talking about uh, uh, the palaces in Mesopotamia or the palace in Knossos in Crete. Um, our buildings can't stand that much time. So if we want to be remembered, we have to start taking action for that to happen. Because basically, if you look at it now, archaeologists of the future will still be excavating things that happened before us because they won't find us. That's a complete... So what you're saying is, this was a very elaborate way of saying that future archaeology is doomed because we're idiots. No, <laughs> it's, a, it's a future... It, it's, it's a way of saying that future archaeology will be dealing with some kind of time gap that they might not be able to understand and they might not know what happened to them. It's more likely that future archaeology will believe that the 20th and 21st century was a period ruled by children or space gods <laughs> fighting each other yeah. than by uh, people who, uh, um, you know, and I, you know what, honestly, you know, I think about it as we talk, I don't know what's better, children, space gods or crazies like Saddam Hussein and Hitler. I don't know, <laughs> you know, what sounds better? <laughs> It's mad. What, what, what future past do you want? <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to basically blow our minds with the idea yeah. of what the archaeology of the future will look like. I just you, I love the concept that we might be looking at people a thousand years from now thinking the 20 and 21st century were like some kind of dark ages because there's nothing left except little exactly. alien toys. We, we, we're doing so much. We're doing so much, but nothing is physical. And remember, archaeology is physical because you see, we all, we all love books. I got this new book today. I'm really excited. Oh, sniff it. What does it smell like? Oh, it's it's a. Uh, do you know Abe's books? The ones that yep. sell the old books. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I got it from there. It's called it's called digging for God and Country. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I think. Do you know what I think? It's I have about. That. 
by Neil Asher Silverman. I don't really like the writer too much. It's kind of a pompous asshole. But um, <laughs> but, but I need he not, for, does he for, not cover? I think I have it because there's relevant to the Palestine Exploration Fund in there. Oh, oh of course, of course. You can't yeah. you can't talk about history of excavation in Israel without talking about the PS. Yeah, so it might be Kitchener and his few years out there is my obsession. Kitchener and Condor and all those guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah Al and Amir found, and I just yeah. found um a guy called Bruno in France with a bookshop bookstore who has masses and masses of First World War French stuff. Um and he, he may have my car details and I may be screwed. Um oh dear. I'm paying my phone bill this month, but uh, we'll deal with that when I get to it. Gillard, you've been amazing as ever. This Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you for calling our existence into question. Yes, you <laughs> utterly, utterly <laughs> deserve I'm, glorious, I'm, glorious card of you as uh, Princess Leia that we've given you. Yes, and you know, Alex knows this, but I'm I'm really fun at party. Goodbye. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.